on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. These old stories, in order to survive over time, have to shift and change. And so, of course, you know, they're passed orally and then they're passed by written. And, you know, when imperialism, so, you know, successive waves of oppression and or imperialism came into these lands, they were layered over top of what was indigenously there and the stories that that were there. The stories shift and change. We're very conditioned to look at the black and white or good and evil. So in the story, anything that you would say, oh, well, this must be the evil force, flip it upside down and just see what happens and look at it and reweave the whole story if this being is not actually the evil one and what role they may be playing in the story if we look at it from a different perspective. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Stephanie Mackay, an educator and mentor in earth-based skills and ancestral ways. She is the co-founder of Fiana Wilderness School on Vancouver Island, as well as a monthly mythology club, where folks explore stories of predominantly Indo-European origins in an attempt to uncover the remaining vestiges of an intact land-based culture and spirituality indigenous to that landscape. In our conversation today, we discuss her time studying with Martine Pactel and developing the eyes and heart to see the rich layers of story. We name the distinct and modern act of looking to stories primarily through a psychological lens and what is missed by doing so. Of course, we dive into an animist retelling of Iron John, the story made famous within the mythopoetic men's movement through Robert Bly, and we talk about where stories go to survive in dark times, only to emerge again when the conditions are ripe. A reminder that The Mythic Masculine is now on Substack. You are welcome to become a free subscriber and gain access to all public posts and episodes. If you are financially abundant, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for $5 a month. This supports me to continue the many hours of effort it takes to research and produce each episode. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you, yes, you, to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive posts, episode transcripts, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Stephanie Mackay. Welcome, Stephanie, to the show. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be here. Well, I'm very excited about this interview, and we'll get into that very soon. But I love to open all my conversations by asking the guests to share a little of where they are in this moment, mm. geographically, spiritually, emotionally, just mm. to situate the listener, you know, in this moment. Great. Thank you. I am on the land of the Stenemuk First Nation on the island that we now call Gabriola Island. It's just off of Nanaimo. And yeah, it's... It's a warm day here and I've had a good day so far and I'm excited to be here. Hmm. Well, this conversation is going to be about the book, well, about the story of Iron John and, and certainly mm -hmm. to explore perhaps a, a lesser known or, or wagered take on things. But before we get there, I do want to hear a little more of your story of which, you know, we, we are just getting to know each other here now as mm -hmm. well. I understand you're the co-founder of the Fiana Wilderness School, of which I know yeah. one of the other co-founders, Kess, who's a good brother. You know, we were in men's group together, and I know mm -hmm. his his deep love of myth and story as well. And so I'd love to hear some of, yeah, your story. What was it that drew you to myth, I mean, to story, to this as it feels, feels like a, a lifelong study, really, or a lifelong devotion? Mm. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, it's, it's actually only fairly recently that it's crystallized into something that I would say I'm, I'm very dedicated to and, and is a lifelong vision for me. It's certainly um, a lifelong passion, but I, I didn't really understand how it was going to unfold in my life. It was really just a personal interest and excitement about story and, and mythology and I studied with Martine Prechtel for 12 years. And of course, 
mythology and story and the spiritual origins of, of stories is a huge part of his teachings. And, and he really opened my eyes to the layers of mythologies and the immense beauty that is held within those layers and how so much is right there in the story if we only have the eyes and the heart to see it. And so it was over the course of the 12 years of studying with him that that myth really took shape in my life. And I just started reading a lot at home. And it wasn't until I think maybe about four years ago, I was guiding a wilderness fast and Kess was there with me. And we really wove mythology into our time out on the land. And at the end of that, I made a commitment to start a mythology club. And it was just really all I wanted to do was just sit around with some friends and talk about a story once a month. And I wanted to come with questions and I wanted to explore. And um, out of that, it's really taken hold in my life and become a huge dedication for me and, an, and a deep love. Hmm. Thank you. You know, I wonder, I, I'm be curious to hear some of the lineage, right, that, that we're speaking yeah. to here, because I do think perhaps it's important for the listener who also may have listened to other podcasts I've done. You know, I've, I've deliberately gone and sort of sought some of the yeah, the lineage holders in a way of the mythopoetic men's movement in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, I've brought on Michael Mead and I've spoken to, I don't know, Alan B. Chinnon, like t- contemporaries of Robert Bly's around that time, or, or I should say sort of students of Bly's and, and heard stories of, from, from that time, particularly around Iron John, of course, Martin Shaw, you know, studied with Martin or studied with Robert directly. So I've sort of tried to track, right, this sort of particular threads of this ecosystem mm-hmm. that I understand Martin as well is is sort of you know, around, but he, in many ways, Martin, Martin even really said, he's like, Martin came in to that whole scene and like obliterated it, whatever had come before because of his own connection and steeping in, in indigenous ways. I understand in Guatemala, right? That was the, the place. And of course he's written about it extensively, but yeah, you could shed some light on that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, Martin, of course he, he grew up on the Santo Domingo Pueblo in what's now New Mexico. And so it was, raised indigenously and and then of course went to Guatemala in sort of his I think late teens early early 20s um and then was in Santiago Atitlan and was initiated into the traditional ancient knowledge of of the people there both on the medicine path and um, within the the community and and really what at least my understanding of of what happened was that when he came back to the states there was a period of time where um, he shifted an interest into Indo-European stories and mythology. His father's Irish. And I think when he was a kid, he had read Parseval. His, his father had read Parseval to him or with him. And he, Martin returned to it when, you know, he was back in the States and was carrying with him this incredibly, uh, fine, ornate, in-depth understanding of Indigenous life, Indigenous spirituality, mythology, came to Parseval with that and recognized so much of what he carried Indigenously in the story of Parseval. And then, of course, looked at other um, Indo-European stories and found the same thing. So that's very much what he passed on to us in his school, Bullet's Kitchen, was is is reading these Indo-European stories with an understanding of their indigenous origins, or that there are vestiges of an indigenous origins in these stories. Mm. So yeah. this is really helpful, I think, also for the listener listeners to situate what I've come to understand as essentially a psychologized yeah. understanding of myth. Right, that I, I think attributes a lot to Jung and uh, his student, I think Marie Louise von Franz, who then influenced Robert Bly. So there is this, again, I, I would say this lineage of essentially applying mythic 
or mythic story and mythic thinking uh, as as sort of only as psychological insight, right? It's all internalizing a myth into, oh, well, this is meant to teach us about, you know, what, what a man's psychology is like or what a woman's psychology is like or the soul's journey. And I just want to name that because I do think this represents a fundamental distinction, right, between what you've labeled there also as a, an indigenous understanding of what these myths were for or like what they did or what they encoded, not as fundamentally psychologizing them right into that into that utility. So, yeah, I, you're nodding your head a lot, you know, so, so this is maybe what maybe you could also help to tease out that distinction, because that's going to inform how we then approach Robert Bly's Iron John. For sure. Um, okay, there's a couple of things in there. I have never read Robert Bly's Iron John. So, oh, so actually, what I'm what I have read is the Grimm's Iron John. So, um, I, I don't want to set up the expectation that I'm going to be bringing anything from or talking really articulately about Robert Bly's Iron John because I've never actually read it. So, I don't know much about what he said. Yeah, I'm happy to fill that part in. Okay, great. But yeah, this is this is definitely there is a really important and big distinction. And I certainly remember sitting in session with Martine and offering some <clears throat> thought about what we were reading, and immediately he's like, "Nope, that's that's too too psychological." And you know, he'd say that to me, and it took years. He says that to people all the time. It's too psychological. So this the the psychology and the mythology are totally different, and there may be some crossovers, but, but ultimately psychology is a new layer that's, that's put on these stories. And the, the, with the origins of these stories, they were never meant to offer a psychological understanding of the individual or of, of life. The stories are living beings. If it is a, if it is a true mythology from, from a people, um, it's actually ultimately from the land and the story lives in the land, is of the land, is the unfolding of the natural world in a context that humans can understand and share with each other in a cultural mode. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I, I just really want to highlight this distinction because I do feel like it's most folks that would encounter myth through, through you know books that are put out and you know, ex extrapolations of the hero's journey and all this kind of stuff, they tend to, again, this is the water they swim in, mm -hmm. right? So so most of the books that would talk about this stuff, they'll just assume without question that this is a psychological understanding and here's what it means. Yeah. And so I, that's why I think this conversation is so important, actually, to to really distinguish. So the listener kind of fully grocks what, why the, the, the distinguish or, or just the importance of that. So thank you for doing that. And we mm -hmm. may return to that element again. And so maybe we head to the story now. So you've read the Grimm's, as you say, which is also what Bly did, right? Of course, he discovered or, you know, harvested or brought forth the story that certainly inspired him to then write the book, Iron John, which I can just say to you up front, yes, it's, it, it feels primarily a psychological exegesis is the term, right? Where he, he sort of makes leaps of association and symbology and and it's very beautiful in a lot of ways and has, you know, some some deep insight. You know, when I first read the book around 35 as a man, I was, de I was definitely affected, right? I was really yeah. taken by a sense of a map of masculinity or at least my experience that I was having that mm -hmm. suddenly was illuminated to me. And certain motifs that really stuck, stuck with me and continue to, you know, things like the wild man, of course, which has become almost a, a sort of fetished, you know, object yeah. in, in modern men's work now as well as a motif particularly called of stealing the key, right? Mm -hmm. Which is an element, at least, you know, that was brought forth that he spoke to around men's sexuality and the mother and, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Else, obviously influenced by Freud and Jung and again, that whole lineage as we talked about. So I don't want to necessarily say, toss all that out. You know, this is actually what it means, but I just think it, yeah, it is really important to distinguish between those understandings and the approaches and that, yeah. yeah and I'd love to hear what was your encounter like then when, and, and even why this story actually came about that you wanted to to approach it then? Sure. Great question. Yeah. And I also want to say that I'm not, I don't have any interest in throwing out the psychological either. And I've certainly, I hear from you and, and I've heard from other men in my life who are just wonderful individuals that 
Robert Bly's Iron Drum was deeply impactful for them. And I, I think there's absolutely a place for that. And so I uphold that and, and say, okay, that's, that's great. So we're not throwing that out. We're just entering into different territory. So I was, so the story came into my life. I had never read it up until a few months ago. Of course, I had heard about it, but I had never actually read the story. And I, I do these monthly mythology clubs and one on Gabriola and one up in the Comox Valley through the winter. And one of the folks that is a regular at mythology club came forward and said, Hey, can I request a story for our next session? And I said, sure. I'd love to hear, you know, what you're interested in. And so he said he, he wanted to, to go into Iron John because he had recently been given Robert Bly's Iron John. And my initial feeling was, Oh no, I, that's like, that's territory I can't go into. Robert Bly has done it. And you know, there's, and has had a huge impact and I don't, I don't know that I could could touch that. I feel, like, feel like redoing a greatest hit or something from exactly. some big artist. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, but I was curious. I was like, well, I'm just going to read the story. And so I read the story and still was in a place of, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But found myself uh, constantly over the next several days, just going back to the story and back to the story and having moments of, oh my goodness there's some really important things in here and and i just couldn't couldn't let go of it and or they couldn't let go of me and mm -hmm. so so that's that's how the story came to me and so then we i said i agreed to to go into it in our next mythology club and it was phenomenal and it's it's an immense story and absolutely beautiful and holds both grief and beauty and i'm so grateful mm -hmm. it came into my life mm -hmm. Beautiful. Now, I'll say this at this point, you know, this could be a moment where I say, okay, pause the podcast. If you've never read the story, you know, look it up. I can include in the show notes a link to a version. I understand the story itself is actually not very long, right? This is kind of the thing it's with, yeah, these, these little myths is that they don't, they're actually not very long. And you read them in, in Grimm's often, they're like, you know, a couple paragraphs sometimes, these stories. Hmm. And then, of course, you wonder how some of them were, you know, extrapolated into Disney films and stuff when <laughs> they're actually very concise. But I would say if you haven't heard the story, then, or, you know, there's other versions you can find as well. You can, you know, compare, contrast, but at least maybe here we could sketch, or you could sketch very briefly, like at least maybe on the surface level, what's the, what's the quote story that is, that the Grimm's captured? Sure. Well, there's a king and this king has a forest and there's hunters that go out to this forest and, and all of a sudden the hunters start disappearing and they're not coming back from the forest. So the king bans everybody from going into the forest. And over time, a hunter comes out of nowhere with a dog and says, I I'd like to go into the forest and find out what's going on. He goes in and he discovers a pool or his dog runs up to the pool and a arm reaches out of the pool and grabs his dog and pulls his dog in. So the hunter runs back and gathers some forces and tells everybody what happened. They drain the pool and at the bottom of the pool, they find a rusty skinned wild man. They capture the wild man, bring him back to the, the palace and they lock him up in an iron cage. The prince is, is, you know, out there in the courtyard playing with a golden ball and his golden ball rolls into the cage of the wild man. And he says, oh, give me back my ball. And the wild man says, no, you've got to open the door. This goes on for a few days. And of course, there's a key that's to the cage that's hidden underneath the queen's pillow. Anyway, the, the prince eventually ends up getting the key and frees the wild man. And the wild man takes off, but the prince says, wait, don't, don't leave because I will be beaten if, if you leave. And instead of staying, he abducts the prince and carries him off into the forest with him. And this sort of sets in motion a, a bunch of tasks and jobs that the prince has to do. And he eventually ends up at another castle where there is a princess and he's employed by the cook and by the gardener. And the, the princess notices some particular features of this young man and I think takes a liking to him. But war happens and he goes off to war. 
but he has an ally in in the wild man. The wild man has pledged to to be there and to help him should he need him. So with the help of the wild man, he is successful in the war and is also successful in his courtship with the princess. And yeah, I think I think that's the general gist of it. And at the end of it, there's a big celebration where there's for the wedding of the the prince and and the young man at this point, or sorry, the princess and the young man at this point. And uh, in the middle of the celebration, a very ornately dressed king comes in and walks up to the young man and says that he is, in fact, the wild man and that he has been, uh, quote unquote, set free and that all that uh, he possessed now belongs to this young man. Mm. And that's the end Mm -hmm. of the story. Thank you. And so I'll say then, Bly's take on it, of course, from a psychological perspective, is that all of these images and symbols and things correspond to essentially what's known as like an initiatory tale for a young man to an adult. Mm-hmm. That's that's loosely, I think, my my understanding, right? And so, therefore, all of these things talk about you know the different stages a man must go through to or boy to become a sort of mature adult. You know, qualities of courtship and and achievement and you know all this stuff. So. That's typically how most understand it now through Bly's book. And so I'm curious for you, what, and again, having not read Bly's, but at least what swam forward for you through this, you know, somewhat simple tale, right? About a, about a young boy and, and the wild man and the wedding, you know, really. <laughs> I think, first of all, it's absolutely a story of initiation. So I, I would agree with that. But I think that the point of the initiation is not about the boy. You know, in an intact culture, initiation happens not so that the youth can go through this experience and psycho-spiritually transform or develop into an adult. That's, that's the byproduct, basically, of initiation. Initiation is specifically meant to feed the cyclical nature of the holy in nature so that it's actually an engagement with feeding that which gives life to to the village to the community and so this story is not any different than that this is exactly what the story is but what's so cool about this story is well there's many things but is that it specifically tells us why this is this initiation is happening and before i go to that specific point i'll just say that these old stories in order to survive over time have to shift and change and so of course you know they're passed orally and then they're passed by written and you know when imperialism so you know successive waves of oppression and or imperialism came into these lands, they were layered over top of what was indigenously there in the stories that, that were there. And the stories shift and change, but the, the threads are still there. And so there's an example in this story of how it changed in order for it to survive. And it's, it's in this written version. So the written version that I have, and I'll just go back to where we were are in the story. So the, the, the dog has been taken down into the pool of water. The hunter has gone back and gotten people and they've drained this lake. And there at the bottom, this is what they say. When they could see to the bottom, there lay a wild man whose body was brown, like rusty iron. So, there's one word in here that if you just take that word out, it changes the whole understanding of the story. But the word was put in there so that the story would survive. Basically, its pagan origins were eradicated by this one word. And the word is like. So if we look at it again, when they could see to the bottom, there lay a wild man whose body was brown, rusty iron. So Iron John is actually iron. It's not he's like iron. He is actually iron. And so this whole story is the basically the agreements 
that the people have to uphold in order to have iron as a part of their culture. And if you look back in all Germanic, Celtic, all over Indo-Europe, basically, iron, there's bog iron and there's lake iron. So a lot of the original iron actually came from the bottom of the lake or the bottom of the bog. So that's what mm. I see. And it's, it's amazing to me that that's still there. Mm. This is, yeah, it's fascinating that, you know, I'm always, I'm always struck by how if I, I've had a guest on the show also who have, you know, have intact relation to their language, their indigenous language. Yeah. And I'm struck by how often the, like the name of things and places and, and, you know, kin, they tend to, maybe not always, but they tend to describe that relationship or that quality, right? So like there's a place near where I live, of course, on Salt Spring Island, or it's nearby on Salt Spring, but it's called Wakwam. But it means something like, you know, the, the, the place where the red-breasted duck comes to roost at a certain time you know, of year. Whereas in a culture, in a, maybe that is a distinction between a colonized culture or maybe like an abstract culture, where it, it becomes a place name of somebody who, you know, a famous person who, who discovered it or something, right? So in that sense, there's a complete disassociation from the language and from that relationship. And so I see in what you're saying as well, if Iron John is seen as a psychology or a psychologizing story, it yeah. loses its, its actual, wait, this came from somewhere, actually from somewhere, and they like some relational intelligence to place and to a kinship bond with, in this case, you're speaking of iron. So mm -hmm. again, for me, it's like immediately detonates a kind of a way of see seeing and perceiving, which it's like yeah. breaks a certain spell, right? The certain spell of modernity that is, is that there's no such thing as really place and specificity in regards to these myths. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the word, by putting the word like in there, it completely removes it from the land removes it from the place and removes it from the whole culture. And that's a, a major device of the oppressor is to undermine, you know, the spiritual origins of a people by distancing it or flipping it upside down. Well, it can't actually be that it can only just be like that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's completely changing the whole thing with one word. Now, in a way, I think you're saying it here, right, is that perhaps it was it's a it's a pagan strategy to be like, well, you know, we didn't we didn't really mean it is that. So it's just like that. So that lets us keep our stories. Like, yeah. I think that's also what you're saying, right? It's a, yeah, a strategy. Exactly. And I've, I've heard that also the sense that where does, you know, indigeneity go to, go to hide when colonized or oppressed? It's often in food, in music, in story, you know, and even in language, right? It can it can shift because it has to in order to preserve itself. Yeah, exactly. So that's why we often like, you know, you can look at children's tales because children's tales are not threatening. But so if you hide, you know, the deeper spiritual threads within the children's tales, which, you know, we now have this thing, well, it's always fairy tales, it's for kids or whatever. Although I think I have a different understanding. Probably most people listening would have a different understanding. But yeah, it's it's the safe place. Where is it safe to hide these um teachings, this knowledge, so that it will survive. Mm. Now, according to this read now, as you're put forth, so if it is a, a, a sort of covenant or, or the instructions of a covenant or some kind, right, with iron, people's relationship to iron. So how do you read the story now? Like, what are some of the elements now that change for you as you shift them from symbology, psychological symbology into uh, relational understanding? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a big question. There's, I mean, this story, we spent three hours on this story in Mythology Club and we're just scratching the surface of, you know, so once you really start to get into these stories, I mean, we could spend three hours on just the first paragraph because there's so much in them. And once you, I really like to say that mythologies are like riddles. They, you know, you go in Riddles or, and or fractals. It's like once you go in, then just something else opens up. And then you go in a little bit further and something else opens up. So this, this story is very much like that. But if we just look at the, the, first, the first paragraph, 
there's the question to me of, okay, the hunters were going into the forest before and nothing went wrong. It was all fine. First of all, what is the role of the forest in an indigenous culture or in this culture in its, you know, ancient origins? Then what happened that all of a sudden the hunters were not returning? So very often the, the forest or actually the edge, we can say like the edge of the kingdom, usually how it's described is that at the edge of a kingdom, there's a forest. So you have the cultivated and then there is this edge where you then go into the wild. And that's where if you have an intact spiritual relationship of reciprocity with the land, that place, that edge or that forest is the place where you would go and give your offerings to the land, to the spirits, to the holy. So the people, if the people start getting taken, to me, that's something has happened in the agreements. So those offerings are given in order to keep the agreements to say, we will take iron from the land, but we have to give our offerings back. If the offerings are not given back, then they start being taken. Mm-hmm. You know, it strikes me too, this sense of, well, when you speak of, yes, this innate reciprocity and mm-hmm. that, that it's possible and often, and often there is a, a, a danger of forgetting right? Like a, a people's forget, actually, wait a second, we, 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 you know, there's a need to, to maintain that relationship. And it's almost like the, the forgetting can beget more forgetting yeah. uh, until it's almost like, you know, like that, that spiritual w- work of that generation accrues to the next, accrues to the next. And then now nobody remembers, right? What, yeah. what was that all about anyway? Um, and so what I look at that story as well, I mean, I think of the time, I don't know when it was gathered or when it might have initially been sort of emergent from the land, like you're saying, maybe the first time there was a sort of cultivation of iron or harvesting mm-hmm. of iron. But I understand, of course, Europe was heavily deforested as mm-hmm. well through its you know, civilizing efforts and how that consequence too, to the, to this, the, yeah, to the to relationship to land, to even a kind of, you know, I'm thinking of Gilgamesh now even, right? This sense of yeah. a kind of wall going up between, you know, out there and in here, and mm-hmm. that already begets a forgetting, right? Of mm-hmm. well, wait a second, wait, what do we not owe like a debt in a sense, right? But but again, that sense of reciprocity. So I don't know. I wonder if there's any other historical clues in a way of what what that may have be speaking to. You know, again, a kind of you know we were we were kind of fine for a bit, and then all of a sudden hunters start disappearing, and suddenly something's up. But we don't even know. We don't know what the what is. We just know they're disappearing now. You know, mm-hmm. at, at least according to the story. Mm-hmm. Well, but I think what's so beautiful about this story is this story is coming from a culture that's not intact, but is coming from a culture that does still have initiation. Mm. And so if the initiation is the addressing, and I would use the word debt, Martine uses the word debt. So mm. we we are in debt to to the natural world. We are taking constantly in order for to live. But but it is it's not not a debt in the way we think about debt now financially. It's it's a debt that cannot be paid off. It's because in order to survive, we simply have to receive. So it is about it mutual indebtedness. So this story, yeah, it's it's the culture is no longer intact, but the mutual indebtedness is still being addressed, and so there's there is the rupture there's the forgetting and by some understandings the forgetting has to happen in order for the whole story so basically in order for the whole initiation to happen the forgetting has to happen so i think it's it's tricky for us to to grapple with that but it's to say well we should never have forgotten in the first place well but we have forgotten but then in our remembering, we are addressing our debt. We are addressing the reciprocity by going through the process of remembering, which is essentially what is within this story. Mm-hmm. So it's the initial forgetting, let's say, if, if that's what this is, if the agreements are forgotten and they're no longer being upheld, this sets the whole story in motion so that the initiation of this young boy happens. And the initiation itself 
is what is feeding back and giving back to iron. Mm, okay. Yeah. So that was the piece that I was going to speak to is yeah. that as the arc of the story then unfolds, then there is this sense, yeah, of, of like, what are the skills needed, yeah. right, to actually be in that reciprocity? And I, maybe I'd love to touch on that too. But even before that, I mean, I'm curious what you might make of the the need to essentially shackle, you know, the wild man and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, carry him to the courtyard and lock him up, basically, which to mm-hmm. me doesn't feel too relationally respectful, right? Mm-hmm. It feels a bit almost like the, you know, King Kong or something, you know, you bring the wild in and lock it up to so you can feel safe, even though there's a low level menace present in a way, right? At least that seems mm-hmm. to be indicated in the story. But yeah, I wonder what you might make of that. Like what what shifts there from a maybe a kind of courtship of reciprocity, right? To mm-hmm. one of now actually we have to essentially, yeah, take and buy and bind because because there's a fear there almost of what might happen if we, you know, let the wild man out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I don't know that Iron ever asked to be mm-hmm. domesticated. So basically, this is the domestication of Iron. And so we look at it as, or I look at it as this is the abduction. This is the stealing of iron out of the land, which we're still doing today. I think if the culture was still intact, there would be that process of basically love. There's, there's the love relationship between the holy and the human that brings something new into the human culture. So this is one step away from that, where it's no longer being asked, will you come so that humans can have iron? It's being taken, iron's being domesticated, but it's not, everything's not totally lost because the initiation is still happening. Thank you for that. I wonder... I mean, I understand iron, the presence of iron or the, 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 as you say, the harvesting of iron, the taking of iron, then what did that turn into in terms of the impact, right, on, on that world? Because I understand, I mean, of course, weaponry was mm-hmm. a big use of iron. And then all of a sudden, that use of weaponry could then foment, you know, further clashes of clans or, or like just the clearly the advantage suddenly went to those who had cultivated iron. Yeah, and even mm-hmm. like, even I imagine like the alchemy of the forge, right? As uh, in the blacksmithing, that whole world, they would have been seen as, I mean, maybe that's as alchemists really of taking this, you know, metal and turning it into something utilitarian. Yeah, totally. And that's what the boy goes on. So all of the, the challenges, all of the tasks, all of the jobs that he goes on, those, so if this was an intact initiation, through all of those stages, he would be given the the teachings of each one of those tasks, basically. He would be given the sacred knowledge. So he would then become the, the keeper of that. He would be carrying all that sacred knowledge. So the blacksmiths originally were the sacred people. They were there, it was highly secret what went on. They were very like shrouded in their, you know, forge. They were always by water. And and they carried very sacred knowledge. So they were the magic people originally. But as time goes on, and as like there's a continuation of the falling away of the agreements, um, iron is considered a very hungry metal, spiritually. So, so the iron itself needs to be fed. So then when the iron's not fed, of course, it's coming in as weaponry, but also, you know, in terms of agriculture however some forms of original agriculture were considered to be like a battle with the land you know there's the like scarring of the earth through agriculture so then iron becomes more and more and more hungry and then you get and i think we see this in the story then you get the larger scale wars because that's feeding the iron so the blood of the people, the blood of the people is feeding the iron. Yeah, that that's a very like just to pause on that too for a moment. In some ways, that that should spook you a little bit. I think the the yeah. listener, right? Because 
in some ways it kind of invites an understanding that this element, right, or this this inanimate metal or what you know, whatever it is. Not inanimate. Well, exactly, right? In quotations, yeah. inanimate. Has its own has its own way, has its own need mm-hmm. for sustenance, has its own mm-hmm. will in some ways. And mm-hmm. that that right there actually sort of dissolves this distinction that I think modernity sort of upholds so convincingly, right, of what is animate and what isn't. And um, ironically, actually, this is maybe just a little weave in from Mr. Jung, but this idea of, of course, the anima, it's interesting because it shows up in that word inanimate, right, as in yeah. without soul, right, yeah. without soul. And so to to understand that iron itself may have its own, yeah, its own hunger, its own need to be fed, and then the consequences of not doing that upon the human you know, endeavor, that that should spook in a way that maybe could invite in a deeper contemplation, actually, of just because we don't believe, you know, we in quotations, just because we don't believe things are animate uh, doesn't make them so. They still exactly. they still have a way and a hunger and a, and a need of that reciprocity. Yeah, exactly. And so in, you know, this story, which is it's a story, but it is, it's a natural process that's, that's happening in the land. It's still happening. Hung, and yet the hunger is getting, you know, more and more and more because we're getting further and further away of addressing our mutual debt. And it does, it, it makes us pause and, and look at things a little bit differently. Well, I wonder, you know, again, like you said, I mean, every paragraph and every, you know, symbol or motif could then be spent many hours on. And, you know, we won't do Mm -hmm. that here now. But I'm curious to know, you know, this thought comes to me of, so here's Robert Bly, right, who who was an accomplished Mm -hmm. poet for many years, you know, decades before he turned his his way towards men's work and, and myth. And he writes this book, Iron John, which sparks unquestionably some ripples right of yeah. of this this response to you know masculinity what does it mean to be a man in these times questions around culture and initiation and, and all of it and and it, it had its you know had its time and continues now in a way to, to resurge now my curiosity is could that be seen as a way that the story went to hide you know and, and in a way to to re- to come out again to be right. to to be revealed again even cloaked in psychological mm-hmm. understandings. Mm-hmm. I, I like that a lot. I, I would I would say absolutely yes. I think each time the story, you know, surfaces, there is the opportunity to see with the eyes of the soul. There's the opportunity to to discover, to pick up a vestige, and all it takes is the shifting of one word, of the shifting of like, and all of a sudden these hidden vestiges are revealed. So um, because I think for sure these stories, these living beings want to be remembered. They want to be in relationship. And so I love it. Yeah. Well, I wonder, uh, you know, in our, in our time that's left to us here now, I mean, I wonder if you could share a little then of how to approach myth in this way. Like what are perhaps some, you know, some skills or some some ways of orienting mm-hmm. yourself to to read in a certain way, to in a way track when maybe perspectives or lenses are sort of put forth on questioning, for example, like mm-hmm. a psychological understanding, like how to, you know, b- basically be able to sidestep perhaps and say, OK, there's mm-hmm. that. But actually, how do we bring in a different way of of understanding what might be happening? Right. And. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to just hear some of what, you know, what you apply. That's a great question. Turning our prejudices upside down is a huge one. So we can read this story, maybe not this story quite so much, but let's just take Baba Yaga, for example. It's very easy to, in the, the Russian folktales, it's very easy to look at Baba Yaga and say, oh, well, she's she's the ugly witch. But if you flip that upside down, and you can look at it from a different lens. You can say, oh, actually, Baba Yaga is the great, big, powerful, holy female. And that changes things. 
So if we look at, we're very conditioned to look at the black and white or good and evil. So in the story, anything that you would say, oh, well, this must be the evil force, flip it upside down and just see what happens and look at it and re, you know, weave the whole story. If this being is not actually the evil one and what role they may be playing in the story, if we look at it from a different perspective. So that's a, a big one. Mm. The other one is, is words. So words actually contain a whole story in them. And so if there's something in a story, you know, oh, there's a good one in here, enchantment. So at the end, there, there's the use of the word enchantment. Well, if you look, you know, sometimes that gets translated as spell. And then I think we tend to have an association of, oh, well, enchantment is a bad thing. It's like you're, you're casting a spell on somebody and it's, it's not actually good. But if you actually look up the etymology of enchantment, it means to sing into. So the etymology of words actually tells a whole story of the origins of those words and the beauty of where they come from. And so if I think about that difference of to sing to, and in the context of the story, I understand that is that's actually an indication of the ceremony that is done to feed iron is this actually iron is sung to, or that there's some portion of the the story or the initiation where there are specific songs that are sung to iron. And yet we can look at that as, well, he was a spell was cast over him and it's a bad thing. So that's actually both prejudices and the etymology. So etymology and prejudice, prejudices are, are huge. And if you're just curious about if something in the story just seems funny or curious, whatever you're struck by in the story, just spend some time with that section and do research. Look up the words, look up, you know, the origins of blacksmithing or whatever, you know, looking up more. Excellent. Yeah, very yeah. useful. I'd love also to hear your way of approaching telling story, right? That, that there's something, this is something Martin Shaw, you know, spoke to on the recent tour, but he spoke about, you know, there's something when a tale is written and, you know, you're kind of reading mm -hmm. it in your mind, but there's something else entirely when you're speaking it, because, you know, so many of these tales were of course, or told by oral cultures and that there's something, something else happens when they're spoken. And so, yeah, I wonder maybe your experiences with that or your encouragements with that or, or warnings with that even. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, there's, there's obviously something incredibly beautiful to telling and or receiving an oral story. There is a way in which our hearts open to hear differently when the story is told. Um, and that has huge value when we're entering into a relationship with mythology where we're looking at something deeper. So we're more, I think, susceptible to being touched by that deeper resonance when the story is being told. The reason why I like working with the texts is because with a storyteller, a storyteller may miss some certain words. So these are the records, the written texts that we have. These are the records that, you know, bring us back to the closest we can get at this point to the oral tradition. Um, and of course, it totally depends on who the translator was and the whole line. But there's little things in the stories that if somebody may tell it, because they're telling it the way they tell it, which may be beautiful, but they may miss, you know, something that is really key um, to is like a, yeah, a key to that or that vestige of the old knowledge. So I like, I like both for sure. And what's your sense too, of how to, how to know what's the, you know, what's the key versus what's the flourish, you know, what's the, mm -hmm. what are the bones? Cause I, this is again, something I'm, you know, I'm just hearing from Martin Shaw about, you know, a story is you, it has this, this architecture and then, you know, there's, there's kind of flourish within that. But oftentimes if somebody sort of freestyles, 
with the mm-hmm. with the bones, then that's dangerous to, to you know to the mm-hmm. story. It's sort of too much liberty mm-hmm. in a way. But how to know how to distinguish? I'm curious between those things because of course the written versions often are kind of written and rewritten. And you know, I know Grimm's did this in their mm-hmm. new editions, and and then they sort of get you know passed around on Google or whatever it is. And yeah, mm-hmm. so is there any way to instinctually sense? Maybe it is in the comparison. You know, maybe that's another thing, mm-hmm. right? Of like, oh, what was changed here? What wasn't? Totally. And that's a really good point to, you know, referring to your previous question, finding the oldest version you can, and then finding the multiple written versions, like all the different translations you can, and then doing a comparison. That's key. And that does help you figure out what are the bones and and what are the flourishes. Beyond that, it does. It's just, it's, it's a discernment really you know the more you read i think i think the more stories you read the bones are not that different Mm. from story to story like you can read you know what has blown me away repeatedly is how i can read a story that was passed on um by martine which many people may be familiar with the toe bone and the tooth and then i can read a story from the caucus mountains from where what's now today georgia and see almost exactly the same element in those stories. And they're so far apart mm-hmm. and they come from different, you know, different cultures, different people, thousands and thousands of kilometers away from each other. So that's a bone for sure. There's no doubt about that. And they're, they're slightly different and that's the flourish. So the more you read the stories, it becomes very clear what is the bones because you'll see it repeated over and over and over again in like across the world. Well, Stephanie, I wonder, is there anything left to leave the listener with now in this foray into myth story? Anything left to say for you? I just think keep reading and, and, and keep going in and just keep, keep honoring the stories. And I think that's the best we can do. Beautiful. Well, thank you once again for your time today. Thanks so much, Ian. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share on your social media. Once again, you're also invited to find The Mythic Masculine on Substack. You'll be able to subscribe to forthcoming episodes as well as become a paid supporter visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more.